0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Danielle Wood, Director of the Space Enabled Research Group at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Media Lab. Professor Wood's work is fascinating and multifaceted. She uses her expertise in aerospace engineering, aeronautics and astronautics, and technology policy to enhance societal development bringing together tools, not just from space and engineering, but also from economics and other social sciences. In today's episode, she'll help us understand this work with an example from Brazil. And we'll talk about her collaborations with policymakers from around the world, using space-based technologies to improve life here on Earth. Stay with us. Okay, Danielle Wood from the MIT Media Lab, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's really great to have you with us.
1: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here.
0: So Danielle, we're going to talk about your work today, which I personally find hard to describe. So I'm going to ask you to describe it in a couple of minutes. But uh, before we do that, can you just give us a a quick sense of how you got interested in working on issues related to space, uh, and in particular, how you ended up working on space issues from kind of multiple disciplinary lenses?
1: I love sharing the stories of the ways that I came into the space field. In particular, I use a background now that we're in virtual meetings a lot. And it's a picture from space of a region in East Africa showing Mount Kilimanjaro, which is the tallest mountain in Africa. The reason I choose that Zoom background is because it relates to the story of how I became involved with space. When I was entering my first years as an undergraduate student at MIT, I had been very inspired by NASA as a high school student, I was very fortunate to work as an intern at NASA. And I was really overwhelmed by the beauty and the awe of the big jobs that teams at NASA did together. Especially, I got to see the launch of the Chandra X-ray Observatory. And I was trying to understand how this amazing observatory could understand what was happening very distant locations in the universe. But I also saw the International Space Station in, in its early years of assembly. I was able to see the United States Laboratory Which now we call the ISS National Lab component, the Columbus module, when it was being prepared for launch. I got to actually walk around it and look at it. That kind of experience really gave me a deep connection to the space program. But I also had a strong interest in understanding what was happening in the broader world. And I knew that people from different backgrounds, especially black women like me, didn't all have such amazing opportunities that I had. Here I was as an 18 year old entering college at MIT, one of the most prestigious universities around the world, especially for engineering. And I knew that many people had sacrificed to give me this opportunity. I knew people with my background and my skin color and my gender didn't all have the chance to aspire to easily move into opportunities for education or for career development that I had. And so I felt that I wanted to work in space, but I also wanted to find a path to pursue work that made a difference in this broader community to say, how could more women, people of different backgrounds, people from African and African diaspora backgrounds, how could we all continue to build our communities and use technology in a way that serves our society? But I didn't quite know how to do that. I just had it as a vague idea. <laughs> and when I was an undergrad, I would travel to Kenya, especially in the breaks, maybe summer or winter breaks. And I would work at a small school just to spend time with girls and, and be around people that were inspiring and trying to serve people who were needing support and needing opportunities for education. I would spend time with tutoring and, and lectures in English or science. And it was really fun, but I also felt like here I was studying aerospace engineering at MIT, and then spending my break time you know, hanging out with awesome girls in Kenya. And I thought, these seem like very different activities, but they shouldn't be. There should be some connection between the two. I was fortunate to eventually learn a lot from a wonderful NASA civil servant named Daniel Irwin. Hopefully, the, some of the listeners may be familiar with Daniel Irwin's work. And Dan has since started the Severe program, which is now a global network uh, coming with collaboration between NASA and USAID, our U.S. Agency for International Development, and USAID and Severe and NASA come together with many collaborators around the world and they make it possible to improve the ease of access for NASA satellite data and the design of decision support systems to help apply this data directly in response to local needs. So it was really inspiring for me to learn about this project in its early years from Dan and learn about other examples of how countries around the world were already using satellite data as a method to focus on national development goals. And when I saw the connection, I realized, well, Kenya is a country that actually already has a lot of experience using satellite technology for mapping and for resource management. And it's a country that is on the equator and has a experience and history with uh, the experimentation and launching. So this is something that isn't totally separate. I can think about uh, my volunteer work and, and my interest in Kenya alongside my interest in space. And that was the beginning of a longer journey where I pursued graduate studies focusing on the applications of space technology by countries in Africa. And I also started to study the policies and programs for countries both in Africa, but also in the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Latin America, to see how countries were starting new satellite programs based on the emerging small satellite revolution that was happening in the late 90s, early 2000s, 2010s. And so I became somebody who mixed my, my training both in engineering, system engineering, and also technology policy, seeking to understand what are the best ways to apply space technology to support improvement of life on Earth for people from lots of different backgrounds. And this has been a path for me. I've then continued to look for ways to basically get paid to keep working on this. <laughs> and that's some of the challenge, right? It was wonderful to study this in grad school. And I continued and worked in the Washington DC area for several years after that, getting great experience at NASA and several NASA partners and affiliates. And I was able to eventually get lots of good experience doing management and engineering and technology policy professionally. But I still wanted to find a way to apply my interest and my skills directly to ask how we apply space technology for sustainable development. And I'm so thankful to now have an academic position where I get to apply this using multiple types of tools, coming from earth science, coming from satellite engineering, system engineering, and also drawing from social science. So it's great to be able to apply earth science, social science, and engineering all at once in my job right now.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. And it's such a fascinating story. And we're going to touch on at least a couple of the elements that you brought up. Uh, in that description of your path. Um, So I really appreciate that introduction. Um, Another question that I wanted to ask you kind of at the outset is listeners might have gotten a sense from what you just said that your work brings together lots of different strains uh, to try to understand um, complex phenomenon to inform decision making. So, like, if you're at a dinner party or a cocktail party, and obviously none of us have really been to many of those lately, but in the future when you do go to a dinner party or a cocktail party, and someone just kind of asks you what you do for your job, what do you tell them?
1: It's really fun to try to describe what I do to people from different backgrounds. At a high level, I say that I'm working with a great team of students and researchers and we're trying to do three things at once. One is to design today's space technology to make it easier for people from different backgrounds to use it to address sustainable development right now. Number two, we tried to invent some aspects of future space technology, but it should be very sustainable, meaning good for the environment, and accessible, meaning affordable to people from different parts of the world. Number three, we also learned a lot from social scientists, especially from historians, economists, political scientists, who write about some of the challenges our society needs to improve on, especially related to issues of injustice and inequity. We try to incorporate that social science back into our engineering. So sometimes we write papers that basically you know, look like studies and reports, but they are influencing our methodologies and how we, as engineers, and, and also uh, computer scientists and other people who make things, we want to do things in a way that's really informed by social science. So we're definitely doing the best we can, both for the engineering, but also for society.
0: Mm-hmm. That's that's great. And, you know, one of the projects that I know you're involved with that does bring together those those disciplines in, in the ways that you're describing is the Valuables Consortium, uh, which is a collaboration between RFF and NASA and other organizations. Um, so I know that you're working on this project related to conserving mangrove forests in and around Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Can you give us a little bit of background on that project and then help us understand how satellite data and socioeconomic modeling tools are being used in that project to actually inform policy decisions on the ground
1: i'm very happy to talk about my interactions with the valuables consortium and i'm so pleased to serve on the scientific advisory committee as well it's been wonderful to learn from the other members of the community with valuables and what a great idea to focus on bringing together those working in earth science as well as those working in social science so we can better describe and also measure some of the benefits of having satellite Earth observation data directly used either to make policy or to inform decisions to manage the environment. I am greatly thankful that we and my team at Space Enabled at MIT have had the chance to collaborate with several teams in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil over the last few years. In particular, I can thank uh, NASA in terms of creating opportunities to meet leaders who are working in their own local environments. In fact, I met this colleague who's a leader from Rio de Janeiro who works in the city government named Felipe Mandarino. I first met him in Washington DC at the GEO, the group on Earth observation meeting that was held, the international meeting that brings together people from around the world interested in applying earth observation data for sustainable development. And that started a long dialogue that's continued now. And the opportunity is that we are able to ask questions around how the government of Rio de Janeiro helps support the protection and management of a really important set of trees known as the mangrove forest. For those who aren't familiar, mangroves are a wonderful family of different kinds of trees that grow in coastal areas, especially near the equator. Mangroves play a special role in many ecosystems. They often grow in what might be called either wetlands or areas on the interface between saltwater and fresh water, And they play a certain role both in carbon sequestration but they also help in their local environments, they help to be a nursery for baby animals, whether it's fish or shrimp or other animals that depend on their very nice roots that create this special environment that's not too uh, dangerous for baby animals to grow. So many fishers depend heavily on having healthy mangroves. And this is true also in Rio de Janeiro. Now, urbanization has been a key concern for mangroves around the world. And many of the important cities that are ports and provide key economic growth should have mangroves, but they're often pushed out by, by development, by construction, or by uh, sea level rise and erosion. All of these can be a, a harm to mangroves. So many governments need to put in place positive policies to make sure that they're actually protecting the mangroves and perhaps having areas of conservation. This is true in Rio, where there's a protected forest area that's one of the last healthy mangrove forest regions, and it's on land that's managed by different policies at the local and, and regional level. And so we could ask the question, you know, are the policies working in a way that helps to improve the long-term health of the mangroves, which has a direct impact on the economic and social well-being of people from different incomes, especially low incomes, who depend on the health of the mangroves for fishing. It's great that in this case, the city of Rio de Janeiro has a good practice where they have professional geospatial analysts embedded in the city government who can serve as advisors to policymakers about how to use satellite data and other forms of mapping data in their policies. So it's a great project where Part of the, the role of valuables, right, is to ask who has been trying to use satellite data and can we try to measure, using economics, some of the financial and other benefits of using that data. And Rio's a great candidate, that so they do have a long-term commitment to applying mapping to their policies. They also have a good record of how they've used mapping to measure the health of the mangroves over the last few decades. Plus, we have the great benefit that NASA and USGS provide the Landsat data set for such a long period so we can make long-term summaries of the health of mangroves. And I want to give appreciation because we're drawing from some techniques for mangrove mapping from space developed by Dr. Lola Fatiembo and also Professor David Lagomasino. uh, They're at Goddard and East Carolina University, effectively. And they've also really influenced the methods we're using. So ultimately, we can ask the question, what kind of measurements were the teams in Rio using over the last 20 and 30 years to monitor the mangroves? What has happened to the mangroves themselves? Are they actually surviving and, and growing? And then what policies were in place in a certain year to both take measurements, but also to conserve and protect the mangroves. And we can make a great uh, story that actually summarizes how the observations, the policies, and the health of the mangroves all relate. Ideally, you want to see good policies protecting the mangroves that are actually enforced. You want to see healthy trees, and you want to see consistent observations. And when you see all of those together, you really have a strong story. When you see some of them slipping, you can ask the question, well, what happened? Can you improve it?
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I know one of the You know, tools that you're using to try to get at that question involves, um, you know, a modeling framework that you and colleagues uh, have developed and maybe are still developing uh, that seeks to bring in different types of modeling uh, tools to address these complex systems that have sociological components and geographic components and, um, you know, earth system components. Can you talk a little bit about the, you know the complexities or the things that are interesting about bringing in Earth system models and human system models into a single umbrella, and maybe uh, if it's possible to use the Rio example as a the Rio project as a framework, that would be really useful too.
1: The work in Rio is actually a wonderful example of a broader framework that we're creating at Space Enabled, along with a number of collaborators. The framework is called EVDT, which stands for Environment Vulnerability decision, technology. It's long, right? So we'll go with EVDT for now. (laughs) And I want to give appreciation especially to doctoral student Jack Reed, who is a leader within our team on this topic. And also we have another colleague named Seamus Lombardo. Both of them are using their doctoral research to advance the EVDT modeling framework. We're applying it both to the case study, as you heard, for Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. We're also now developing new case studies looking at coastal management in Indonesia, as well as questions of responding to COVID in multiple countries and to forest management in Northern California with a native tribal community called the Yurok tribe. So we're so thankful to have these different examples and together, all these examples help us mature the EVDT approach. What we hope to be creative with the EVDT method is to basically say, in order to address these important goals as described by the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, you're always looking at a complex systems problem, meaning you're looking at a problem where the environment, social changes, economic changes, and policy need to be aligned closely and we can't have just one kind of expertise. We need people from lots of different roles to play, uh, be, be a part of the process of developing long-term management plans for these important issues. So for example, I'm often work, working on sustainable development goal number 15, which highlights the benefit of increasing biodiversity and keeping healthy ecosystems on land. So if we take the Rio example, one of the SDG number 15 goals is to have healthy forests, including mangrove forests. And you could talk about the need to understand what's happening on the state of the environment. So that's the E. You can ask how humans either benefit or lose when the environment changes. That's the V. You could ask what policies are in place either by individual humans who might be, for example, cutting down one mangrove tree, or policies at the level of a, a city government or a national government who are conserving or enforcing you know, conservation. That's the D. Now, the T part of the framework is important, too, because it's often separate from these models that may integrate, say, social and economic data. The T part asks, what technology is available to decision-makers right now, and is it adequate? Do they have enough information about the environment? If we have sensors from space, for example, should they be also augmented with sensors from the, from the ground or from the air? So the T is really a system engineering analysis to ask, what are the requirements for monitoring of the environment for decision-makers, And do they need more technology? And if so, can we analyze the cost and the capabilities of new technology to try to propose a better T, a better technology option? So we put them together. We're using earth science and data analysis to describe the environment. We're working with collaborators who are economists to describe the economic changes and social changes. We're checking with policymakers to find out how they're thinking about their policy options. And then we're adding the T to make a system engineering analysis. And as we get more and more mature with this method, we'll be able to combine these all into integrated analysis.
0: Wow, that sounds so cool and so interesting. I am uh, would love to be a fly on the wall at some of your meetings someday. Um, so hopefully when things return back to normal, you'll let me tag along uh, into some of those meetings since I imagine you have a lot of really fascinating discussions in those uh, conversations. So um, we've been talking in some detail about the Rio project and some of the specific modeling tools, um, but it'd be great to zoom out for a minute and just ask the uh, a couple broader questions. You mentioned in your introduction that you've traveled extensively around the world and that you've interacted with decision makers um, who are using different types of satellite data to inform their decisions. When you kind of think big picture from a public policy perspective, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned from those different experiences with different policymakers?
1: I definitely want to talk about my experiences learning from policymakers, especially because sometimes people say, that in my work I bring space technology to other countries, but I definitely want to strongly say that that's not how I see myself, especially because so much of my work has really involved listening to leaders. For example, in my doctoral work, I had the chance to interview a number of leaders who were the first or maybe the second in their country to start a national space program. In countries like Kenya, South Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, Korea, later in Mexico, Chile, and I'm now getting to know folks in Brazil, I've had a chance to hear from you know, leaders who are really courageous because they looked around at their country and they said, our country needs to have space technology as part of our national development process. And I see a way to both train people and engage with international partnerships and to start some of the early projects. So I want to say these leaders deserve so much credit. And I came along as an eager listener and somebody who had a lot of interest. And I think now that I've listened to so many of them, I can now bring together the lessons from the various you know, examples and I can say, Hey, I've heard from 10 different countries. Let me please pass it on to you. So I'm honored for now to be a, a formal space policy advisor for the government of Bermuda, for example, they have a space policy advisory council for the government. And I think it's so great that I can draw from these years of lessons that I've been learning from and pass it on to Bermuda. And I chat with other leaders around the world as well. So I want to highlight that it, I want to show that there's been a lot of learning, you know, through the community, of people that you know share these experiences across different continents. The second idea I want to share is that as a university professor at MIT, I'm so thankful that people are really quite hospitable, and many people welcome me and my team to come collaborate with them. So we try to work in places where we're invited rather than creating our own ideas of projects from scratch. Instead, we basically look for those who already have really innovative activities happening in all these regions, especially regions near the equator that are experiencing a lot of impact from climate change now. There's a lot of local and then national and regional leaders who are doing their best to combine their local resources and international collaboration to work on really important challenges, and many of them can be well aligned with the sustainable development goals. So I give the example of of Ghana, for example. It's a great case where, as you look at the bureaucrats working across the government. And I use bureaucrats in, in the fondest of ways here. There's people who are going to work every day and doing hard work. For example, we've been hosted by the Ghana Statistical Service and the Ghana Space Science and Technology Institute in a project funded by NASA to look at issues of deforestation due to mining. And I'm very much admiring the wonderful bureaucrats who have the job of thinking about how to both improve data analysis and improve policies and enforcement policies. And I find it so wonderful that they're spending some of their time with me because we're looking at you know particular methods to improve the use of satellite data for these, these goals that they already have. So my key approach is, one, to find out who are the inspiring leaders, which might be government bureaucrats or entrepreneurs or researchers in universities, what are the important problems they identified, which often can be found you know, on the list of SDGs, and how do we agree on, you know, this is your definition of how you're addressing this locally, and if I can do something that's relevant or useful with my various tools from space technology, I'm happy to try. So I often look at the list of satellite Earth observation, satellite so positioning and communication, and then also ha- see how we can draw from space technology transfer, or human spaceflight technologies and, and methodologies, and even from fundamental research from sp- space science and astronomy. And if any of these are relevant, I'm happy to share them with my colleagues who invite me to join their work. And I think that approach of showing respect to these leaders is one way to make progress together.
0: Yeah, that's so well said. And I think many researchers, myself included, are learning more and more about the importance of working with partners at the beginning of research processes rather than at the end, and seeing them as just kind of recipients, passive recipients of research, uh, and instead trying to build research programs around the the needs and the requests of the decision makers who are ultimately going to be using the research.
1: That's a great observation. And I can just highlight, especially thinking about the period since COVID started. Previously, before COVID, I could go and visit collaborators in countries like of Ghana and Benin and Brazil pretty regularly. And that was really fun, obviously, and also you know <laughs> gave me a chance to really build relationships. So I felt like we were on a great foundation, right, in terms of having their view of what the project should be. And of course, I've been so frustrated in the last year not being able to travel. But I have to give appreciation because one example is that we responded by creating a project that is based on the EVDT modeling framework, and it's called VIDA. And VIDA is another decision support system framework focusing on adding public health. So now we have five key pieces of our model, public health, environment, socioeconomic, policy, and technology. And we asked colleagues who are our research colleagues or government leaders or entrepreneurs around the world who we already knew, hey, what are you doing in your own country for responding to COVID? And they've been willing to volunteer time very consistently over the last year. In fact, we now have a monthly meeting with people from five different countries. And we're all exchanging methodologies to use data analytics to inform public policy in responding to COVID. And it's the same kind of idea, what can we learn from satellite data? What can we learn from local health data? How do we combine them effectively? So now we have colleagues from Indonesia and Brazil, the same colleagues from Brazil that I mentioned earlier, uh-huh. also from Chile and Mexico. And we're really learning a lot from each other and they're just being generous to engage with this network and to pass the information across these continents so we can share
0: yeah that's really interesting well i'm sure they're being generous but i'm sure they're also learning a ton from uh from the work you and your colleagues are doing um i want to ask two more questions before we go to our top of the stack segment and they're they're on kind of separate topics but i think they're both relevant and i'm really eager to hear your responses to them the first one is about the um the outer space treaty which we talked about a couple months ago on this show when we were we had an episode on space mining with alex gilbert from colorado school of mines So international agreements like the Outer Space Treaty, which entered into force in 1967, they articulate a goal that the human use of space should be for the benefit of all mankind. So I'm just curious from your perspective, like how are we doing on that score? And I'm wondering if there's an example that comes to mind of uh, one example where we are living up to that aspiration and then places where we still have a lot of work to do.
1: The Outer Space Treaty is one of my favorite examples of areas that inspire me and how I shape my work. I'm really proud of the history of the space community in the sense that we were able to come together. I say we, meaning the historical people I'm I'm building from. (laughs) I obviously wasn't there, but I can look back and say I'm so thankful for the leaders that came together in the 60s and decided it was important to define space first as a globally shared resource and a globally shared heritage for all humankind, as well as Thinking about it from the point of view of public-oriented service, topics such as space exploration, scientific research, these are public services that belong to everyone, rather than private services that belong to those who can pay. And if you think about space, we can also consider other regimes where there's international treaties that guide how we collaborate. You can compare it to Antarctica, to the oceans, to the atmosphere. And each of those regions has slightly different treaty approaches. And if you consider the atmosphere, for example, it's slightly more geared toward a commercial orientation, meaning the coordination we do internationally for air travel is really driven so that people can pay a fee to commercial companies so we could safely fly and have freight. And this makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is something that works well in a practical sense. But I'm so thankful that for space, it's not a commercial first orientation. It's a public service orientation first. So if you think about some of the strengths of that, The public services that are really becoming vital to our daily life include satellite based observation of the Earth, satellite positioning and communication. In all three of those areas, there is both a combination of public and private actors. But part of the the vision is that the signals that kind of rain down from the satellites, whether you're thinking about the positioning signals or the ability to measure satellites uh, observation on the world. It's something that is sort of globally done rather than just for one region. And that's a very positive aspect. So I'm so thankful that other people know it or not, they're benefiting from satellite positioning all the time, right, whether it's directly using your own phone to map your, your path or just using a transaction, such as an ATM or a gas station that's been supported in some way by the timing signal or the positioning information from space. So I'm so proud that there's many aspects of space technology that do sort of serve the global community equally. But that just means that the service is being given out equally it doesn't mean that everyone is in a position to use the service in the same way on Earth. And the reason for that is based on history. I teach a class at MIT for graduate students in the fall. And the title is, Can Space-Enabled Designs Advance Justice and Development? And the reason I teach the class is to especially encourage engineers, designers, architects, and others to read historical documents to understand how we came to a world where we need the sustainable Development Goals. Like I love the SDGs, I use them all the time, but I'm actually sad that we need them. Meaning, why do we have to have a goal to eliminate extreme poverty and a goal to ensure everyone has access to clean water? Why don't we already have those things met, right? Because we clearly have enough technology and enough insight into how to solve those challenges. But the reason those needs are there is because of historical patterns, including colonization, slavery, and a globally driven economic system that favors certain countries over others by exploiting those who are at lower incomes in certain regions for the benefit of others in other regions. So we still have some work to do because those who have experienced traditional and historical patterns of, I'll say exploitation, meaning those who had less opportunity for good jobs and for safe places to work are still the ones who are not benefiting enough from space technology. But going further, we have some important questions to ask as a global community right now, because right now there's a number of technologies that are evolving and maturing such that things that seemed relatively impossible in the past for space communities will be feasible soon, including having robotic missions regularly to the moon, having humans stay on the moon longer, having missions that go to asteroids and consider trying to mine. It's, it's not coming right away, but it's coming in the next in our, our lifetimes. And that means that we should start asking some key questions that build on the Outer Space Treaty and really exercise some of the details to say, well, if you know, space is really the heritage of all humankind, How do we ensure that for the next generations, we're leaving a beautiful heritage of all these celestial locations? So, for example, the moon is is a relatively small location compared to the Earth. It has limited physical locations for people to operate and has limited resources. So I hope that we, the current generation, will not, in a sense, uh, ruin or destroy what's already on the moon, but rather consider it a heritage to pass on to the next generations. And I hope that when we have more activity on Mars, for example, we can also ask how to be as sustainable as possible In ways that should also feed back to earth but we don't want to have uh, societies based on exploitation and waste of either humans or the environment instead we need societies that are based on being as careful as possible to do no harm both to humans and the environment but also to actually design really innovative ways to be creative and use uh, cool technologies like additive manufacturing or other areas to uh, have uh, really the best synergy between humans and the environment
0: yeah, great points. And and you've articulated them really nicely and given us really helpful context as well. So last question now before we go to our top of the stack segment, um, which is just about your background. And you mentioned it at, at the outset. Um, you know, Unfortunately, there are relatively few women of color working on many of the issues that we've touched on today. And so just wondering, over the course of your career, what advice would you give to young people, particularly those from underserved and underrepresented groups, if they're interested in following a path that is at least in some ways similar to yours?
1: I'd actually love to start by giving me advice to people who are not from underserved groups because they have a key role to play in this topic. The first angle is that all of us need to read the history of our own country, our own region. I'll speak to the US audience for now that there's a lot of important history about the United States that helps explain how we see things today. But we we don't all know some of the key facts and events that shaped our society today. And if we did, we could have much more informed and and better thought out ways of responding to today's challenges. So I wanna recommend uh, one book, for example, by Professor Ibram Kendi. It's called Stamped from the Beginning. And the subtitle is The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. I use this book in my teaching. The reason I mention it is it draws from a long history looking at the entire period of European influence in the United States area. And it helps to understand key events that really remind us of today's events, but put them in such great context. So the first idea is let's all learn our history because it'll help us avoid being surprised by today's events. The second then is to say, and to those who may find themselves uh, feeling that they're in a community that's not getting the great benefits of some technology or education opportunities, I just want to give a general message of we love you, and we see you, and that you, you matter, <laughs> and that you can do uh, challenging things with the support of people around you. I am currently physicians to be hopefully the first woman to get tenure uh, in both the Media Lab, which is our Media Arts and Sciences program, and I'm also affiliated with the Aeronautics and Astronautics department. There have not been previous Black women faculty in these departments at MIT. And of course, I'm inspiring to great things and I hope it works out. But I'll just note that along the way, as I studied at MIT as a student, I couldn't learn from people who had the same demographic background that I had. But what I'll say is that I gained a lot from learning from those with different demographic backgrounds because they chose to invest in me. So all of us can play a role, no matter what we look like, to support those around us, especially those who may experience being in a position that is has many disadvantages, right? Whether from your demographics or from other... Uh, experience background. And one of the key things people did for me is to tell me they believed that I could become a leader. Literally, they would say to me, I believe you can go to grad school, I can believe you can become faculty, I believe you're somebody who's preparing to be a leader. So I try to pass that same message on to my mentees. I'm thankful to have a number of people on my team, and I try to say directly to them, I believe in you, I look forward to your future leadership. When you become a leader in the future, I want to collaborate with you. I think you're going to, to be wonderful. So I think passing that kind of message on is so important.
0: Yeah. That's fantastic and um, thank you so much for those thoughts so let's um well I want to dwell on that but we're but we're at time so um so let's go now to our to our last question which is our top of the stack question to ask you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard recently uh, that you would recommend to our listeners and I'll, I'll briefly start with a, a film uh, that I watched recently there was a it's not directly related to the environment, but I was thinking of it in the context of this conversation because when I was learning about your work, I kind of had, my jaw was just kind of open a lot and I was like, wow. And I, I just had this sense of wonder and amazement thinking not only about space, but about the kind of breadth of disciplines that you bring uh, to bear for your work. And it reminded me of this this film that I watched, which was called In and of Itself, um, which is, uh, it's a recording of a one uh, person show that was put on uh, Off-Broadway for a couple of years. And it's all about um, basically our sense of ourselves and how that sense can change over time. It's about the nature of truth. It's about these kind of heavy things, but it it involves a lot of uh, illusions and sleight of hand uh, by the performer whose name is Derek DelGaudio. And it was just an incredible movie. It made me just kind of change the way I thought about Uh, myself in the world for at least a few hours uh, and I'd really recommend it to other folks as well. Uh, But how about you, Danielle? What's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack?
1: Thank you. I have lately been appreciating that I have a fun geographic connection to some key leaders that I've just enjoyed learning more about their life. One is Zora Neale Hurston, and I'm so thankful that I grew up right next door to the town that her family helped to found, which is called Eatonville, Florida which is the first black township incorporated in the United States. And they have an annual festival to celebrate Zona Hurston there. Zona Hurston wrote a book that was published after she died in the 60s called Barracoon, in which she interviewed one of the last people who experienced the slave transport, meaning moving from Africa to the United States, somebody who survived this middle passage and lived into freedom and lived as a, a free person after slavery ended after the Civil War. Zora so also wrote a number of other amazing books, including novels and uh, books where she captured anthropological data around uh, folklore and stories of the southern communities. And I'm just celebrating, now that I live in Boston, which is quite far from the hometown where I grew up in Orlando, Florida, I enjoy looking back and learning more about my own hometown by the work of this anthropologist and novelist. So I want to pass on any book by Zora Hurston as a recommendation, because part of her vision was to, in a sense, create geographic data by traveling around and listening to people tell stories, creating both novels and, in a sense, scientific sort of summaries of the data she heard, and give us a sense of geography by way of stories and folklore. And she's one of my heroes.
0: Well, that's great. Fantastic recommendations. Uh, And we will make sure to put uh, links to maybe a page that has some uh, collections of her works, or or at least a couple different uh, works that folks can go look up. Um, But I imagine most of us have heard of Zora Neale Hurston, and great to re-up her name on this show today. So once again, Danielle Wood from MIT, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Your work is fantastic and really appreciate you sharing it with us.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, DC. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.